hey, there's some point for some people where they feel like the church is too big or the service is too crowded for them. And I just want you to know there is half as many people at second service. It's half as many people. It feels like a little church. Everybody knows each other. It's so nice. So, um, but I, I'd love for 200 people to go to the other service so we can invite and have more people at church. So one way, to, one way to serve at High Point is to come second hour. Frankly, it's a super cheap way. Then we don't have to do a $4 million building campaign too, which is great. So there's lots of benefits. So uh, especially if you're uncomfortable with how many people are here. Um, I saw, I see that some people are more wear masks. I don't know if counts are up or whatever, but like that's another like health benefit of coming to second service. So however I can sell you, I want to. Um, one of the things that we say at High Point is that we are seeking to um, make disciples. And one of the things people say oftentimes is that disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus, which can sound a little judgy because you're like, well, what if I've never made a disciple of Jesus? Does that mean I'm not a real disciple of Jesus? And so let me say it a little more precisely. Um, disciples of Jesus freely give what Jesus gave to them to make them disciples. Whether or not other people respond to it is really their problem and God's. Um, I don't say that because you can be as— stupid about it as possible, but um, all, part of discipleship is offering the disciple-making message of Jesus to people. Um, that's not one of those things that you can just like, you know, like the line at veto, like some governors have, just like, I just don't want this part. We don't have that. Um, it's fundamental to being um, one of Christ's disciples, and so um, we're going to start something this week that's going to go for 10 weeks, um, or something like that. I think that's right. Um, called Bless. Now, you might see this and you might think, oh man, this is great. Another thing my church is doing to get me to do evangelism. And um, let me say a couple things about that. One is, I'm going to basically read this paper because I want this to be as uncool and unsexy as possible. Okay? Um, we don't—that's not what we're, Christians are about. Look, if you want to be cool and approved of and awesome and an influencer and everybody like you, get a different religion. Okay? Like, th that's not what this is about. Okay? This is about pursuing the truth and doing the good— habituating the soul by its nature to virtue, and pursuing the glory of God for his purposes in the world so that he can be known for all that he is, and so that we can be part of that. And so um, sharing our faith is never going to be without risk. It's never going to be without some emotional fear. It's never going to be perfectly simple. We're, it's never going to be such that we're always going to be positively received by the people we share it with. It's never going to be like that, and that's okay. Um, but one of the things that I, I hear um, from the staff team and other people in the church is people say, Nick, we just—we don't know how to do it. We know we're supposed to do it. We even believe in it. I even profess that evangelism or sharing your faith is important. But I just don't know how. And I—that I, befuddles me because I don't know what that even means. Um, but, but either this should help you if that's your problem, or it should call your bluff. Because what BLESS is designed to be is just a super practical way of just practically stepping through what it would look like to share what Jesus has given you that's made you his disciple with other people in ways in which they might be receptive to it by respecting their humanity and also offering what he has to give. Does that make sense? And so um, this, this uh, BLESS journal that you've been given has all of the steps in it. There's five steps that we'll go through. And the way we're going to do it is we'll go through one, one week, and then the next week, we'll have a story about somebody doing it, and we'll review. And then the next week, we'll do the next one. And then the next week, we'll have a story about somebody doing it, and we'll review until we go through all five. 
And the goal here is, is for just us to be able to be deliberate about this. And so the reason why I'm basically just going to read this is because I'm, I'm one of you. We're all just going to do it. I'm going to do exactly what you're going to do. We're just going to—it's going to be like, I just got something from Amazon, and it was like poorly made in a country that won't be named, and I'm going to have to literally read the directions and follow them. And it's not supposed to be cool, but it will be effective. Does that make sense? So, um, BLESS stands for this. Begin with prayer. B. L is listen with care. Three. E is eat together. The first S is serve and love. And the second S is share the story. Okay? So this blessed journal um, that you got on the way in is something you should have. If you don't have it, please raise your hand. There's people who are going to bring them to you. So if you didn't get one of these, please raise your hand, and we're going to bring one. They're free. Totally free. Great. There's people coming now, I think. Maybe? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so keep them up there till you get one, or start yelling if you don't get one fast enough. All right. Um, Part of the dynamic of BLESS is that there's a recognition there is no formula. Some of you have, re- have like memorized things like the bridge illustration or the Romans road or ways to share the gospel. All those are fantastic. But, but actually going through the relational process of sharing your faith with someone, there just isn't really a formula for that. And so recognizing that um, the way we're going to do be or begin with prayer is basically this, right? Jesus said in John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That is, the disciples who are sharing the message. There's somebody up here, you guys. And right there, they're going to get more. They're printing more. <laughs> somebody's, somebody's copying down more of them right now. So we just have the one person for the whole congregation handing them out. Okay. Shame on you all for coming to church. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I take full responsibility for this. It's Mike's fault. And we're going to get more as fast as we can. All right. So... Apparently, we've already given out all the ones for next service. Okay, great. Um, so, okay, basically, here's the simple process. You go to, like, the first page, and you start with begin with prayer, which means that's going to involve prayer, right? And all you do is you pray, and you just ask the Lord to bring to your mind people that are within your family, circle of influence, or whatever, that you might think that he wants you to give some special attention to relationally over the next 12 weeks. That's it. And then just see what comes to your mind. And see how you feel about it. If you feel nervous, that's probably good. That's a good person, okay? If you feel like peace about it, like, yeah, that's right. That's great. If you feel like you're personally, emotionally involved in making them a Christian, and you feel like suddenly if that happened, you would feel better, that's not the right person. Keep praying, okay? So try to, try to find one where there's like an honest relationship between you, you and God, where someone is being accented. It probably, you'll probably feel like that's probably right, and you'll also probably feel nervous or anxious about it. Does that make sense? All right, then um, actually write them down in this card and in this booklet so that you can't lie to yourself later about what you're going to do. Does that make sense? Like it's clear in your mind. You've pre-decided, you've gone through a process that you think is honest with God, and so then you can pray for those people specifically as you work through the blessed booklet. Does that make sense? That's it. It's really simple. And then start to reflect on the things in that section of the booklet. Recognizing that the next thing you're going to want to do is to get into a situation with that person where you can listen with care. That's going to be the next step, L. Does that make sense? But for the next two weeks, right, this is the easy part, but it's also kind of not because you have to actually do it. We're going to pray, consider. We're going to write down what people we might have come across. 
and then we're gonna, um, we're gonna go through the reflections in the journal about how to begin to put ourselves in a situation where we can really listen to that person with care. Does that make sense? I'm going to do it too. I'm gonna be writing down names. I'm all cooped up in this church all the time, pastoring and shepherding y'all, and I need to do that. So I, I get to lead people to Christ, but it's always low-hanging fruit. They're always like nine-tenths of the way there when they get to my office. And it's like, well, let's pray to receive Jesus. And that, that doesn't count. You know what I mean? That's like, you know, that's like a, you know, it's kind of like a goal. It's like everybody scored a goal kind of deal. You know what I mean? So like, I've got to do this too. And so I'm going to try to have my own stories, except I might discreetly not be able to share them, you know? But, um, Evangelism is one of those things that we will shut up about if we don't do it intentionally and do it together. And in these times, um, you might think this is the moment in your lifetime in this culture where people are least open to Jesus. And that is true. That's true. It is also the moment in your lifetime, perhaps, that people are the most open to Jesus at the same time. Imagine being in the Roman Empire in the first century where you could get killed for sharing Jesus— and people were so hungry for Jesus in this pagan, slavery-oriented, woman mistreated. Like, the, the culture was so ready for Jesus, and yet so opposed to him at the same time. Because it turns out, it was really the elites that were opposed to Jesus, and the people living real life in the real world who were much less opposed to Jesus. And the elites wanted you to believe that all the normal people didn't want to hear about Jesus. It turns out they did. And so we're going to have to summon some bravery and some hope regarding what it would look like if we actually shared with others what we received ourselves to freely give as we have freely received. Okay? All right. If you have a Bible, open it to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 14 and following. I have a very vocal chicken in that box. I'm going to use them later in the service, hopefully. Hopefully you can't smell it yet. Um, that's why it seems like someone's vocally competing with me up here. Okay, ready? I'm reading verse, in for, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. All right, this is the, I don't know how many of the sermon on this passage. There will be at least one more on those last couple of verses. But... As I noted last week—hold on, I'm kind of lost here. As I noted last week, um, that passage says something that's kind of hard for us to grapple with, which is it says that we, are, we shine like lights in the world because in Christ, by being united with him, um, our goal is to become pure and blameless, children of God without defect, shining like lights in the world, right? That— that feels kind of presumptuous, I think, to some people. And I think if people outside of the church heard that, that would feel insulting. And part of the reason for that is, is I think it is insulting. But I think Jesus' plan is that his effect on us will be substantial. 
so that we will be better than we were, truly. And if that's true of people who come to Jesus, then in aggregate, his people would be like shining lights in a world who would be less shining. So I don't think you can believe in Jesus and his enterprise of redemption without believing that his goal is to make us better than we were. I think sometimes people in the revivalist tradition believe that most of salvation is forgiveness. And that in the end, when we go to heaven, Jesus will glorify us, and it's almost as though we've squished together sanctification or the transformation to holiness with glorification, the transformation to our everlasting life. That the two just happen at the same time. And so all we're really doing here is getting forgiven. And that's really not the way the gospel is portrayed in the New Testament at all. It is portrayed in that we can't really begin to grow in faith until we've been forgiven. Because growth in sanctification, that's growing in godliness or pursuing blamelessness and purity in Christ, comes by being first united with Christ. That union with Christ is predicated on forgiveness and therefore just what we call justification. So believing in Jesus, being forgiven, then predicates Jesus coming to be with us and then transforming us unto ultimate glorification. Does that make sense? Now, um, it may seem impious because Jesus said that he was the light of the world, but you need to remember also that the same Jesus said about the people who would follow him, you are the light of the world. That is, we are supposed to imitate Jesus in this, right? Further than that, this particular word um, in the Greek language that is used for lights— in Philippians 2, is only used two other places in the entire Bible. Does that make sense? And it's, so it's not a very common word, and it seems to pick up the meaning of both those places, which is kind of interesting, because the first is, in the first chapter of the Bible, when God creates the lights in the sky, right? So he creates stars, and then he creates the sun and the moon, and he says, let there be lights in the realm of the sky to distinguish day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark season, days, and years. That same word, translated into the Greek Septuagint from the original Hebrew, is this same word in Philippians 2, and you see the point of the lights? That is, that's why they translate it like stars in the sky. Because lights in both contexts refers to heavenly lights or stars. Does that make sense? And so even though the word in the text is literally lights, some of your translations will say stars in the universe rather than lights in the world. Does that make sense? Now, the point of that is this. Is that what, he, what the Apostle Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying is that we are supposed to be like stars. That is, having a kind of permanence in our presence, but also as markers. Like, people can figure out where they are and where they're going based on the steadiness and light given by our presence and character, right? And that is a light that we're reflecting from Jesus himself, right? And then in the, almost the very end of the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, God says, the wise will shine like lights in the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So it's one of the first places, one of the most straightforward places in the Old Testament that refers to the resurrection and everlasting life. And it says that in glorification, our identity will be that the wise or those who pursue wisdom and lead people to the truth and help people see what's right, they will be like lights in the heavens, right? And those who lead many to righteousness, this is parallelism, those are the same kind of person, like the stars forever. That should lead you in your mind back to bless already. Right? The wise, that is the people who lead many to righteousness, will be in the end glorified like the stars of the heavens. 
and the original creation of the stars, God saw forward as a great metaphor for what he would make his people in this time. And you exist as someone called to be that light between those two things, right? It's okay to believe in the positive nature of your God-given destiny. That's okay. You don't have to get hung up on how other people will feel about it. Almost anything good in your life or anything good in your identity or destiny, other people are going to feel negatively about. Okay? It's not your fault. It's okay to believe that that's what you've been called to. And there's—and the thing that's universal is there's nobody on planet Earth for, who hasn't been invited to that same thing. And so there's nothing exclusive about it for you to be ashamed of. Right? Now, therefore, you and I have to accept that we were united with Christ to shine like lights in the world. And the way we're supposed to do that in this passage is that we're supposed to pursue or seek to be without defect in a crooked and twisted generation. That there is a formational component to this. That to give ourselves this to sin or to darkness or to the world ultimately has a twisting effect. It makes us dark. It makes us defected by sin. And we're supposed to pursue to be presented to Christ blameless and without defect, right? To pursue that, we have to actually pursue actually being blameless and pure. That's not wrong. I know for some of you who were affected very negatively by stuff that's sometimes called extreme purity culture, you do like, you, ha- you almost have anaphylactic shock. You're like, where's my EpiPen when you hear the word pure? Like, I get that. And I know for some of you, that reaction is deserved, okay? The word purity isn't about women's sexuality mainly, and the word modesty isn't about mainly how women dress. Do you understand that? It's a fundamentally general concept. Modesty is not putting ourselves forward for higher status in an inordinate way. That's what modesty is. It's not your neckline. Now, you can use your neckline if you're a woman to do that, but there's lots of ways everybody is constantly doing that, like talking too much in a group of people, right? And so modesty has this broad meaning. So does purity. Purity is knowing the one thing and not admixing things that dilute it or poison it. That's what purity means. Knowing what the one thing is. Glorifying God. Being honest to God. Pleasing God. Being God's right steward. Doing what you were made for, what's ordinate to your nature as an image bearer of God. Holding to and walking in Christ's redemption as you are made more perfect in that. That one thing. Believing that one thing. Following that one thing. Embodying that one thing. That's what purity is. Does that mean that you're not going to have sex with random— Yes, that's it's one of the things it means, right? Does it mean you'll dress modestly so people aren't inordinately sexually attracted to you in ways that are raising your status wrongly? Yes. It also means that you'll listen instead of talk. It also means that you'll give to the poor. It also means a thousand other things that will flow from that purity and that pursuit of righteousness and blamelessness. Does that make sense? In that sense, blamelessness and purity are supposed to be parallel because to a large extent— Purity is blamelessness, right? And one of the reasons why—okay, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it'll be like 20 seconds. One of the reasons why we are drawn to seeing things like modesty as related to like women's dress and sexuality is not mainly because we want to control women. It's mainly because we don't want to have to worry about what modesty means for the rest of us, right? There's some women perfectly happy for it to relate to only their clothing and not the rest of their life. And certainly, most men. Okay, so it's, it's more about our escapism than about our desire to control women. That's just a happy addition to the flesh operating in our lives. Do you understand? Happy, of course, ironic. 
if you're a little slow right now, okay? So, then we pursue blamelessness and purity. And then he says the first step in this is rejecting, grumbling, and disputing. So last week I talked about um, being children of God without defect in a crooked and twisted generation. It's right there in the verse. Um, I will say this about that. Um, I did sit down with Danny Eben, who is a counselor in our church, who has spina bifida, is in a wheelchair. She also is a— um, she also, I think, won a national championship in wheelchair basketball. We had a really great discussion. That's going to be coming out on the podcast probably in the next week. You'll want to hear that um, podcast on a theology of disability. Um, the second step, though, is pureness, is pursuing blamelessness and purity. Now, I, I just want to—I'm not going to say much about this because I want to talk mostly about com, um, complaining and grumbling in this sermon. But I think it's important to recognize what these are because sometimes people think that blameless impurity is a refraining from interacting in life in the real world. That it's taking upon yourself the luxury to not be involved in the messy way things really are. So either they think of it in terms of like an unconsciousness to the complexity and horror of the world, therefore needing a kind of protection from the way things really are. Okay, so like um, in all the arguments about like a critical race theory and all that kind of stuff, one of the reasons why, pe- why people sometimes make fun of white women, and I'm not saying this is deserved, but the logic of it is, is that if you have a certain kind of privilege, you're protected and you're unconscious in your experience towards other things happening in the world. And then when you find yourself interacting with those because they get thrust upon you, you react really negatively, right? You react fragilely, right? And so they, people talk about white fragility, right? Well, it turns out, everybody's fragile in the things they don't normally have to deal with. Right? That's true for every, every race, every gender, every person, everywhere, speaking every language. The stuff that you don't normally have to deal with, you're naturally going to be more emotionally fragile about. And the stuff you deal with all the time, you're going to be much less emotionally fragile about. It's just the way it is. And so when it comes to ourselves as Christians, yeah, there are ways in which we can have like power in some kind of way, and we can be fragile when somebody attacks that power, but we can also just like not be used to being spoken to in a kind of way. Or we can, like there's a hundred different ways in which we should, we feel like we shouldn't have to deal with stuff, or we naturally keep ourselves away from it so we don't have to deal with it. And when we do that, we think that we're being pure or blameless. And that's not what those words mean. You understand? Similarly, um, sometimes people think, yeah, pure means like to keep your hands clean. But listen, Nick, it's a dirty world. Like there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on out there. And to think that you can, like, not participate, you can keep your hands clean, is crazy. Okay, listen. Clean hands in the Bible doesn't mean hands that don't have soil under the fingernails. It doesn't mean, like, only doing white-collar work and not blue-collar work, right? Clean hands in the Bible means not having blood on your hands, not not having dirt on your hands. Do you understand? To have clean hands in the Bible means to not engage in injustice, not to, not to engage in the misuse of power, And so, be blameless in the use of whatever power that you have. So are your hands going to be dirty? Yes. Can you still be pure? Yes. Because that's not the question. Right? The person who didn't get his hands dirty is the guy who buried his one talent under the tree and didn't do the work of investing it. Didn't take onto himself the difficult decisions of stewardship. The questions of what should be done in a world that's already spinning mad. Right? I mean, one of the things that's really difficult about pastoring is people don't come to me before they make their big mistake. You understand? They come to me after they made their big mistake, and then they panicked, and then they made another mistake and made it worse, and then they panicked, and they made another mistake and made it worse, and then they panicked, and they made another mistake and made it worse, and then they came and talked to me because they didn't know how to make it worse at that point. 
you know? And so they come and talk to me, and I'm like, and so I never get to be like, yeah, okay, listen, just don't sleep with your coworker. Let's just stop it right now. I don't get to do that usually. Nobody wants to talk to me then because they don't want to hear what I have to say, right? They want me to fix it after. And so now I've got a thing that's already wrong in 15 different ways. So there's no question of what's the right thing to do here. The question is, what's the best thing to do given the options that we've got? You understand? That's all any of us are ever doing since Eve. Do you understand? Since the curse and since all of its fallout, all all of us have ever been doing is trying to sort out with everything already gone as awry as it is, what's the best thing we can do next? Right? Think about it this way. Imagine, I'm trying to use this offensive illustrations as I can today. Um, imagine a protest, like in downtown Madison, over some injustice, you name it, something about straws maybe. And um, <laughs> there's this, so people are protesting, and there's police there to try to keep everything safe. And then the thing just goes haywire. Like full uh, riot, starting fires, going crazy, right? And there's this police officer standing across from another protester, and they're both kind of looking around like, this is bad, right? And so the two basically team up the rest of the night, just trying to make any situation they bump into less bad than it was, okay? That is what the Bible means by blameless. Do you understand? It does not mean... You, you, you know, your perfectly manicured hands aren't dirty. It means you don't have blood on your hands because you've done the best that you could with a bad situation as a steward put there by God. That's what it means. And so blamelessness in the Bible is not this like hyper up in the sky category. It's a very practical one. It's that if a reasonable observer looked at the way you comported yourself in the situation you were actually in and understood the externalities that were affecting you, that were making your decisions difficult and your situation hard, they would look at you and you'd say, look, there's no reason to blame that person. They did the best they could. Which means, therefore, Christian, you can, you can insert yourself in all kinds of things knowing they're going to be difficult and knowing that you may do things that were not perfect. Like, I'm a preacher. Can you imagine if everybody who preached just said, look, if I preach for years, I'm going to say a bunch of things that are wrong, and I, that's all going to be blameworthy, and so I'm just going to not do it. Or if every parent, like every couple that's going to say, listen, we're going to do stuff wrong. If we have children, we're going to do stuff wrong with our children because it turns out we're kind of idiots, you know? And if we wait until we're wise enough, we won't be fertile anymore. It's like a catch-22, and, you know, it like, this is, right? So let's, we'll just not have any children. That'll be better, right? It, it's not going to be better because the children won't exist. And all, all things being equal in Christian theo theological history, being is better than non-being, right? Which is why we've been for fertility in an Aristotelian, Aquinian way. Okay, so you see the point of this? In almost everything that we do, so like, I remember like, most of the stuff, like, like the way of advocation relative to abortion over the course of my life, the way I have tried to encourage our church to support other churches, the way I've tried to engage in the race conversation, the way, like all these things, like listen, I'm like, okay, I'm probably gonna get cut and I'm probably gonna get my hands dirty. Like there's no good way to do this. Like, at some point, we're going to support some church, and they're going to go, like, off the rails and do something bonkers, buck nuts, and, like, we're going to help them. They'll be like, oh, high point, is that what you're about? And we're like, whoa, we're about helping churches. You know what I mean? 
Or like, I'm going to write something on like race and reconciliation. I'm going to like say something that enough people think is wrong, or they say I said something I didn't say, or maybe I'll just say something that's just flat out wrong. And like, it's going to blow up in my face. And I could just go like, you know what, I'm just going to talk about our marriages and like, you know, how to do better at your job and like, you know, how to negotiate romance and like just leave that stuff alone. But you, you can't really leave that stuff alone. You can't just live an unconscious protected life because not only are you not engaging with justice or doing the good that you know, you just keep making yourself fragile in more and more and more and more ways. You're becoming unconscious and brittle. You're not becoming, and you're not happy because your life doesn't mean anything. You're basically keeping yourself from having meaningful experiences thinking that you'll be happier if you do that, which is why we sit in front of those stupid screens and watch videos. We're not experiencing things. We're actually keeping ourselves from experiencing things. We're watching other hypothetical, fantastical experiences that are not us because people can engage in meaningful things without us feeling anxious, unless you're watching The Office, which just makes me feel constantly anxious, which is why I don't watch it. (laughs) Can I get a witness? Okay. So the point is, are we called to pursue purity and blamelessness? Yes, we are. Does that mean women wear turtlenecks everywhere they go and men don't engage in anything because we might do it wrong? No, it does not. It is going to be a gritty, difficult, struggling, problematic, insert adjective of your choice, situation in which everything is going to be a mess because of the curse. But if you leave the curse alone, everything gets twisted. And so we are always fighting what Gladriel called the long defeat. Unless God comes and makes it right, even so, come Lord Jesus, Revelation says, we will lose. We are always fighting a fight that if God doesn't decisively act in history, we lose. Do you understand that? That's the beauty of it. There's this point in The Lord of the Rings where Samwise realizes they're not going to make it back. They don't have enough food. They don't know how. They're not going to make it back. And it says, at that point, when he lost all hope, his face turned stern, almost grim, and he felt himself a new power. There is a kind of hope that is no longer sentimental, but that is really rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus and his coming return and our likely defeat in the meantime and that we participate in Christ's apparent defeat in his death. And in so doing, we become stern, almost grim in our hope, but it gives us the courage to do the next good that must be done. Therefore, if we understand blamelessness and purity in its biblical sense, blame or being blameworthy is a defect of the use of power, the opposite of which is to act justly or to act for what is, what is the right use of what power we have. And pure impurity is a defect in goodness, right? So b- purity and blamelessness, or holiness and blamelessness, which is the more common couplet in the New Testament, must go together. Because what God is saying is, flee every defect in goodness so that what you do is good, is coming from the good, and then recognize you have some power to act and act in accordance with the good, so that there's no defect in your use of power, you act for justice, there's no defect in your sense of good, you act for what is good, and that produces what the Bible calls righteousness. And it proceeds from wisdom, which is why Daniel 12 can say, the wise will shine like lights, and those who lead many to righteousness 
will be like stars in the sky in the final day, in the last glorification. There's only one thing you can boast about, and it's not becoming saved. It's not coming to Jesus. It's what you do with what you've been given. Whether or not you take hold of what's already been declared about you. And the apostle says in that, in the last day, we will either boast or be ashamed. In which Jesus can say there will be a difference in reward in heaven and those sorts of things. Now, if you think about that, that what it says is we're called to be holy and blameless or pure and blameless, without defect, children of God in a crooked and depraved generation, shining like lights in the world or stars in the universe, you might think that like that is just flat unattainable. Right? Like, Nick, I'm going to go to a church where they tell me I'm great just the way I am. They affirm everything about me. They tell me God is just always on my side. And all they mean by that is that they, he affirms where I'm already at, and I don't have to do much other than maybe vote for the right people or something like that. And, like, I get that. Like, I get that what we're called to seems unattainable. The reason why it seems unattainable is because in some ways it is, right? If you read the Bible really closely, for example, the word blameless is actually used with three different meanings different sort of levels of blamelessness, right? Titus 1 says that every elder has to be blameless, <clears throat> right? That's a relative meaning of blameless, right? Like, generally speaking, the man doesn't do things constantly out of a bad character so that other people rightly reproach him and don't want him leading, right? That's, all, that's what blameless means in that context. Then there is a blamelessness of pursuing righteousness, that somebody who knows God, believes in God, it says the righteous will live by faith, and you can actually be righteous or blameless in that sense. That's something that can be true of you even while we're simultaneously sinners. That can be true of you. You could be blameless. And then there is like a blamelessness that is God himself who knows all, knows the good, always has the power to do it, and does it perfectly. And that is the blamelessness we only attain in Christ. His righteousness imputed to ourselves. And what we sometimes do is, because we believe in that third one, impiously and against God in our hearts, we reject the other two because they ask too much of us. And we use the gift of imputed righteousness to reject God's promise that we can have a relative righteousness of character and an actual righteousness of being. I know. <laughs> right? The fact is, is that though we would like to excuse ourselves from pursuing blamelessness and purity— we can't. God explicitly says, though he, though he says in certain places, um, we'll never boast in our righteousness before him. As he lays out righteousness in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, one of the things he says in Deuteronomy is, listen, this thing I'm putting for you, it's not too hard for you. It's not up in the heavens where you say, oh, who can go up and get it for us? It's not across the sea like, you know, we're going to have to, who has a boat big enough to go all the way across the sea to get this teaching of righteousness that we can actually obey? It's completely impossible. God explicitly says in the fifth book of the Bible, what I require from you is not impossible. It's just impracticable. No one actually does it. To say that righteousness is impossible is true in the sense that no one actually does it without grace. But it doesn't mean it literally is impossible. God explicitly says it isn't. That's why we're blameworthy in the first place. Now, um, here's the thing. Here's why it's not easy to get off the hook. To be lights in the cosmos and blameless and pure, without defect, in a crooked and depraved generation. And you're like, that's so—there's no way I can get there. Okay, here's, here's how we know 
you're wrong about that. In Romans 2, it says, Romans 1, I think it is, it talks about the whole world turning away from God. And it says the reason why it, as a world turning away from God is condemnatory, it's blameworthy, is because we should have known at least two things. We could have known everything about God's righteousness, and he never expected us to. But there's two things we could have known, it says. That his invisible qualities and divine nature have been plainly seen in creation, so that we would— and if we were able or willing to see that, we would know two things. That he exists, and we should thank him. And he says, on those, on those terms— Unbelieving humanity is rightly condemned. Not because they didn't believe in Jesus, not because they didn't make the right sacrifices, not even because they didn't keep the Ten Commandments, but because from what has been seen, there is sufficient natural revelation that we should know if we were willing to believe the truth that God exists and we should thank Him. And we do neither. Right? You see how he brings it like real basic, and you're like, oh shoot, if that's true, then yeah, nobody really has a good excuse. Similarly, yeah, it's a bad, long sermon. <laughs> Similarly, after encouraging us to this really big picture of what Christian holiness looks like, where we could get discouraged and say, well, how could we possibly reach up to this? It's in the heavens. We can't even get it. He goes, okay, here's what you do. Stop grumbling and complaining. Do that. Stop grumbling and complaining. Right? Now you can see the, like, the average person is going to be like, Oh my gosh, Pastor Nick, that's so crazy because like venting is so important. Like you have to share your feelings. You just can't keep it all inside, right? All right, it's time for the chicken. Okay. All right, you ready? Come on. Come here. He's gonna, she's going to poop on me for sure. Yeah. Come here. Okay. Hi. Sorry, I'm not good at folding chickens. It's like, the, it's like folding the sheet you put on the bed with the things. I'm not good at it. Okay. Hey. So this is one of my wife's chickens. If my wife was here, it would be making problems. So you may not know this about chickens, but um, there's a little hole in the back here that is called the vent. It's called the vent. The reason I'm doing this, in case you want to know why I'm doing this, I'm going to ruin the phrase venting for you for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's my goal. Right? I'm going to undo the work of devils that have persuaded you calling gossiping venting makes it holy or okay. And I'm going to tell you that that's bull. That's chicken poo. And you need to stop believing it. And so with this illustration, I'm hoping for you to recognize that for the rest of your lives because you won't be able to forget it, especially when it defecates on my pants. Okay, so the back of the chicken here is called the vent. It's the vent. Because not only does the poo come out there, but also the eggs. Do you see the metaphor here? The bad comes out the same hole as the good. Understand? And you see, what the Bible says is that that's also true of us human beings. Right? Here, peck the slide thing. Like I taught you. Remember? You peck the, peck the, okay. I'll just do it. A lot of people really believe that negatively expressing yourself in what the Bible would call grumbling, but we like to call venting, is good for you because it makes you feel better. And oftentimes when you vent and you like talk about how bad you're treated and how bad things are, you do feel better, right? And um, it allows for a certain amount of bonding with the person that you're venting to because what's their job when you vent to them? To agree with you to, or to affirm you. And that makes you feel good and it also bonds you with that person because that person really hears you, right? 
Hearing being agreeing with your sin. Okay, so in reality, that's not what actually happens. Psychologically for you and the other person, or morally, and therefore spiritually, because essentially spiritually is the interplay between being, psychology, and morality, right? Now what's actually happening is you think that dumping a bunch of bad stuff out of the hole that's supposed to produce good things is going to make it just fine for good things to come out too, and it doesn't really matter. It's inconsequential, okay? Now, if you want to see some really gross pictures on the internet, look up prolapsed chicken vents, okay? That's when the chickens just don't eat the stuff that's great for them, and they eat stuff that makes their digestion bad, and then they start letting out the bad stuff in ways that aren't right, right? Because there's ways to let out bad stuff. I'll get to the end here and talk about the biblical doctrine of complaint, right? There are ways in which to let out the bad that are godly. It's not venting. You understand? And so there's a, there's a good way for the chicken to like release things that need to come out, right? But there are bad ways in which it comes out, and then it messes with the vent. You understand? It like, it makes it twisted and crooked, so to speak. And when that happens, then the egg can't really come out well. Or it comes out and it comes through a bunch of disease. So that that disease is on the egg and in it, right? Because guess who has a lot of prolapsed chicken vents? The ones in little tiny cages that produce the eggs you buy at the grocery store. That's one of the reasons why you have to be concerned about diseases being on those eggs. Because the little vents aren't very good because they've been venting badly. You understand? And so to have good eggs, one of the things you have to consider is what, how the negative stuff is coming out which is also about what's happening on the inside of the chicken, the digestion, or what Jesus would have called the spiritual digestion is the heart, right? Because remember, James says, you guys, can fresh water and salt water flow out of the same thing? Of course you can, right? Like, th there's going to be some continuity to things that flow out of the same hole. Does that make sense? And Jesus says about our mouths, because you see, most of the, a lot of the worst things that you'll do in your life are going to come out of your mouth, is what James is saying. And a lot of things you hope will be some of the best things you'll ever do in your life are going to come out of your mouth. You understand? And, and getting out some of the psychological, moral, and spiritual waste material that you do need to get out the right way is going to come out of your mouth. Right? Rightly in spiritual prayer, prayer and spiritual complaint rather than grumbling. Do you understand? And if we, you know with a chicken, what happens is the bad stuff comes out the right way and the good stuff comes out the right way. And you have a healthy— creature, healthy way of dealing with the negative, and a great productivity that its nature was made for. Does that make sense? All right. See, I can just hold her. She's like totally calmed down now. She has a name, but I have no idea what it is. Okay. <laughs> All right. You're doing a great job. You smell terrible, though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to go back in there. Okay. All right. This shirt is going to have to be washed. All right. All right. You see, when we vent, what we're really usually doing is grumbling. And it doesn't make you feel better. Not really. What it does is it gives you a high in the short term of self-righteousness, and you tempt the other person to affirm you out of sentimentality rather than justice. And so you cause them to sin, and then your bonding is corrupted because you've corrupted over sin. It's like bonding between thieves. You know what I mean? Like, hey, we stole that thing together. Isn't that fantastic? Right? You really feel close to that person, right? Yeah, it's bad. Okay? So basically it produces these felt goods, but they're all really terrible for you and for others. Does that make sense? Similarly, we need to recognize that this is the way things work spiritually. Right? I already talked about that. I was holding the chicken. She wouldn't advance it. It's really her fault. Okay. So 
because of that, you and I need to understand that the, one of the first steps of pursuing godliness, of blamelessness and purity, one of the first things we do in union with Christ is starting here with grumbling and disputing. If you will identify what this is, and you will really make war with this thing, put it to death, reject it fully in your life, it will set you inextricably on a path habitually towards godliness. Because if you work on your mouth, it will force you to work on your heart. And if you work on your heart, then it will start to affect your speech, your justice, your actions, your contemplation, your belief in what's right, your wisdom. Now notice he says this, do everything. What he means by this is all the stuff that's enjoined in Scripture, the good that is there to do, he's like, do it. So see, before you can even start with the grumbling and complaining, you have to start by doing the good so that you can have a bad attitude about doing the good that will then tempt you to grumble and dispute. Do you understand? If you're not even doing the good, then you're not even beginning to move in the direction by which if you deal with your grumbling and complaining, it can help you. If all you're doing is being lazy and sitting around and expecting people to do stuff for you and complaining about everything and not doing the good, even this can't help you. Do you understand? You have to start with, you know, it says three verses, four verses. As you've always obeyed in my presence, but also in my absence, keep working out your faith with fear and trembling. For it's God who wills in you to do and to will according to his good purpose. The assumption is you're doing that. If you're doing that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to do good things, and people aren't going to appreciate you. That's what's going to happen. I know. You're going to do stuff that you believe is right. You're going to do it because you think it's good. You're going to do it because it's your spiritual duty to do it and your human duty to do it. And then people aren't going to think how fantastic you are. They're not going to treat you like you're wonderful. They're not going to appreciate what you've done or how much sacrifice you've made. They're not going to see how long you've worked to be as proficient as you are and the thing they're undercompensating you for. People just aren't going to act towards you like they should. In which case, you're going to be either upset at a person or some kind of belief or dynamic. If it's the person, then you want to grumble. If it's the dynamic or the situation of the belief, you're going to want to argue. Right? And he says, listen, don't. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. But then th this, I want you to say this. He says, in order that, that is this. The one produces the other. If you grumble and complain, you won't be blamed up here. The two do not go together. They can't go together. They're perfectly incompatible. A grumbler and a disputer cannot be pure and blameless. They are not pursuing it, even if they're teenagers or the parents of teenagers. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm out of time, and I have most of the sermon left, so let's keep moving. <laughs> Grumbling is—I I want you to have a definition. It is complaining that demonstrates discontent, a sense of victimization, a rejection of your responsibility in this question, and an implicit impugning of whoever's in charge here. Okay? It's not whenever you say something negative. Though you should be careful because you'll usually let yourself off the hook. But it's negative. It expresses personal discontent towards right authority. It recognizes personal victimization. The focus is how I've been hurt, not the question of the whole situation in general. It rejects responsibility. What really is my job to do here? And it basically says, I shouldn't have to deal with this. Somebody at a higher level should have done something so that this doesn't happen here, which ultimately is an impugning of God. The opposite of this is thankfulness, worship, and peace. Now, disputing literally in the Greek language is reasonings. In a few places, the word is used positively. 
about people reasoning. But in this context, it's clearly negative. And the negative statement is this. It's basically reasoning in a way that is disputing with other people in a way where you're exerting like an inflexible or argumentative opinion in your reasoning. Right? Now you'd be like, well, Nick, that, that leaves a lot to interpretation. Yup. Yup. And you should interpret the most strictly for yourself and fairly broadly for others. Right? We tend to interact with people by saying we're right when we don't know we're right. We think we're right mainly because we're angry, not because reason really dictates it. And we push our arguments on things that really are pretty wide open. In fact, one of the places where Paul says don't dispute is in Romans 14, where he's talking about disputable matters. He says, look, there's some questions that don't have obvious answers. And if everybody acts like they know they have the answer, then it's just going to tear the church and the body of Christ apart. So don't do that. In 1 Timothy 2, he says, in public worship, he says, I want men in particular to lift up holy hands, that is, in thankfulness and worship, rather than arguing, showing anger, and disputing with one another, which tears the body of Christ apart. And he is, he is putting a higher responsibility of, on men, in this case, to be temperate. And in that sense, modest. Right? Because in the very next verses, he's going to talk about female modesty in dress. Anger and disputing is modesty in men. He's applying it slightly differently for the genders, but he's demanding modesty from all people. Does that make sense? Now, I want to get to the stuff that— I have lists, and these are supposed to take time, but I don't have much time. Grumbling, grumbling and complaining, gossiping and venting, will destroy you, your heart, your happiness, your relationships, your society, and your eternity, and others. Okay? It is a defect and blameworthy before God, and that is the most important thing. Right? If you don't do something just because it's a sin and you don't know all the whys, it's okay. The word of the Lord make the, makes the simple wise. You don't have to know all the reasons if you're willing to believe and do the right thing. But it harms you, not just your mood, but your mind and your integrity, right? What so, secular psychologists will tell you, just like, look, if you spend your time complaining, you actually will, if, you, if you're careful about attending to your feelings, you will notice that after you're venting, you actually do feel worse, not better. You have a little bit of a high from the self-righteousness and the self-righteous sinful affirmation, but you really also still feel negative. You don't really feel better. And if you have a little bit of a high, that feeling bad comes back pretty quick because you didn't really get it out so that it's no longer in you. You rehearsed what was in you so that it was in you more. Venting is not the getting out of the bad thought. It is the rehearsing and participating in the bad thought so that it becomes more of you, which also increasingly disposes you towards being negative in your mood right? Psychologists will say, well, you know, it's because your neurons, they rewire, you know, they rewire. And we always go, we always look at, oh, but they get neurons rewiring. Like, that's this, like, really deep metaphor, you know? It's like, there's, like, an electrician sitting back, he's like, you guys, that's not a very deep metaphor. It's like, you attach a wire, it's not deep, right? Like, I mean, for hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years, Christian spirituality has taught about the habituation of the soul. That what you do you maintain or move the soul habituated in one direction or another, okay? I have no reason to believe that doesn't include neurological rewiring on some level. But humans have always known that what we rehearse in our moods becomes increasingly part of our minds. 
and eventually shapes us morally relative to our integrity. But not only that, it hurts other people's moods and minds and integrities. The person you vent to who affirms you, when they walk away, they feel worse too. They have rehearsed that negativity in their own mind, and they have possibly even participated in the unvirtuous use of kindness in accordance with worldly sentimentality, rather than the virtuous kindness that is in accordance with love that might have needed to tell you you were wrong. But what we also know psychologically is that you're all worked up when you're venting, and so they can't tell you what's wrong with what you think or what's for your true good, because they'll get really angry and say, you're not listening to me. When they are listening to you, they're just not agreeing with you, and the two are different. And you don't think the two are different because you're angry, not right. Right? That, of course, leads to discord in all third parties when we participate in this, which also leads to bad decisions because we refuse advice, because people can't tell us the truth, because we're upset, and it also inhibits pleasure in doing good, right? Why does he say, do, all, do everything that's good, and then don't argue and complain? Why? Because when I do the thing, and I'm not thanked for it, but I know that it was right, and I know that God approves of it, I have an internal psychological choice whether to choose to take pleasure in it because it's a good, or to grumble and complain because I'm not being appreciated. But you see, responding to external human complaint is a visceral place of the human soul. It's bodily. Responding to the good is a higher moral and spiritual part of the human soul. To the extent to which I invest myself in the complaints of others, I'm moving down as a creature towards a twisted and crooked way of understanding my participation in the world. If I say, no, the thing is itself good. I did what was itself good. I did what I was made for, what's in accordance with my nature, what pleases my God. And I worship and thank him that he's working and willing in me to do the good, no matter what anybody does to me. I can take pleasure in that. You see, the reason you don't grumble and complain is because we're supposed to be taking pleasure in the thing God has called us to do, even when we are being mistreated or argued or disputed with. And so moving not just to righteousness, but to blessed happiness. And then lastly, it misses the early signs of sin, because at that moment when you're not taking pleasure in the good, and you want to complain, and you want to grumble, and you want to argue, that is the moment where sin hasn't totally taken hold yet. It's starting. It's in bud form. You see, if at that moment you realize what's happening, you go, wait a second. This is grumbling and complaining. I'm not doing this. Or a faithful person in your life, maybe your parent, maybe your spouse, maybe your kid even, says, I can't listen to this. I feel like what I'm supposed to give you in love is to say this sounds too much like grumbling and complaining for me to participate. You might need to work it over a little bit before it's, we're ready, to, from, ready for me to be able to hear this. Right? Because that's, the, that's when the thing's first starting. If you, if you notice right then something bad is happening, and you choose not to grumble and complain, but you choose to grapple with the thing for the good and bring your complaint to God and to seek to repent and believe in a move in a direction that values the good, you can avoid so much momentum in what's bad. Right? So let me end with this specific actions, even though we're a bit over from what we expected. I'm going to do this quick. Here are the steps. First is you have to recognize and take responsibility for your grumbling and complaining and your urge to do so in your heart. You have to know it when it's happening. You have to see it for what it is. For some of you, invite all of your friends. You'd be like, just be like, listen, I know I'm a complainer. I know it. I know I'm a grumbler. Please love me enough to tell me. Just like go like this. 
when I'm doing it, you know, like some kind of sign, and just to sh- just help me, because I'm going to need help for a little while here, and just beg people to help you recognize, and then take responsibility that's what you're doing, right? And, and you, you got to do it quick, because once you get all heated up, it's harder and harder, because you get flushed, you know? And then second is pre-decide that you reject it. Just decide as a matter of faith and obedience to the Savior that this is what you've been told by his apostle, and you're not going to do it. Because by pre-deciding, saying, I'm not going to be that kind of person, it will help you in the moment. Because in that moment where you want to do it, and you're like, wait, I decided I'm not that person. I'm not going to be that person. It will help you in that moment to be like, I'm not going to do it. Right? Third is repent explicitly and humbly when you do do it. So when you grumble about somebody, admit it to God first. Then admit it to the person you grumbled to and apologize for inviting them to be complicit in your sin and tempting them to give you the kindness of sentimentality rather than the kindness of love by tapping into their instinct to empathy and trying to draw out from them a justification that only God can give and that he will not give to grumbling and disputing. And then if necessary, and if it humiliates you enough to actually change your behavior, go to the person you actually grumbled about and tell them what you said, tell them why it's wrong, and tell them why you were fighting with God for his own sovereignty when you did it, and how sorry you are, and you want to be trustworthy, and you want to have real kindness in your heart. And you listen, you do that four or five times, and you'll, you'll watch what you say. It's like using the flesh to your advantage. You know what I mean? Okay. Five is take wholesome pleasure in doing good. I riffed on that a little bit. I'm going to have to keep moving. Six is reject retaliatory self-indulgence. Most of the time, you will dispute and grumble is because you believe you have the right to because they did. Okay, listen. If that was true, Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross and you'd be going to hell. You understand? All of God's mercy, every kind of God's mercy, whether creational or salvational or prophetic or the work of the Spirit or any grace of any kind you ever received has been given with a God who is in the state of provocation. God has never done anything since the fall. Listen to me, you guys. Listen, this is important. God has never done anything since the fall where he was not rightly in the state of emotional provocation. And he has never done anything but act blamelessly and pure. And we are his sons and daughters. It is ne- no one's behavior determines what is right for us to do. Ever. If you let yourself believe that, if you indulge that emotion, you will be controlled by everyone and everything, and certainly devils, who have most of the population well in hand. You will be easy to evoke and poke and prod and get to behave however hell wishes you. There's, ne- there's not one positive, worshipful thought in hell, and there's nothing but grumbling and disputing in hell. And heaven was the first one. If I said hell, I don't remember what I said now. Lastly, oh, is that it? Oh, I got them all on one slide. There's like 70 more, but that's what we have time for, even though we didn't have time for it. Let me end with this. Worship team, you can come up. If you go home and you read John 6, 7, and 8, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And you know what people do in response to it after they eat the bread? They grumble. Just like the Israelites in the desert when God gave them the perfect food manna 
And it wasn't good enough for them. They didn't like it enough. And he didn't do enough things for them. They grumbled against him. And Jesus came, he said, I'm the bread of life, and they grumbled. And then he said, in the next chapter, I am the light of the world. He says it twice. I'm the light of the world. And you know what he does? They do? They argue with him. They dispute with him. You see, if you give yourself to grumbling and complaining, you know who you're going to grumble and complain with the most? God. That doesn't work. But the only one who had the biggest right to grumble and complain was Jesus. And he just didn't. He just didn't. He offered a complaint to God. Not against God. He didn't grumble. And he contended with people who fought for what was false, to tell the truth. But in his contending, he didn't dispute for himself or negatively or wrongly. And you see, the, the goal of not grumbling is not to not speak. And the goal of not being disputative is not to not argue. It is to find the virtue of right complaint and positive thankful worship and thankfulness in speech and to know when to stand up for the truth and how to do it rightly so that we're not disputing, but we're contending beautifully as Jesus did. And that's hard. And you're going to do it wrong. And that's why Jesus did it perfectly on your behalf and then died for your failures in grumbling and disputing. And it's why he set an example for us in how to contend and how to complain. And it's why he is with us now, united with him in the power of his spirit to show us in a land where we will get our hands dirty. But he'll show us how to contend and how to complain without grumbling and disputing, doing the good that's in front of us so we can be children of God, pure and blameless and a crooked and depraved generation. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for your will in these things. We recognize them as difficult for us, but um, we also recognize them in our best state as good and as just. We pray that you'd give us the courage together to fight for these things with all our hearts, to do the good, to work it out with fear and trembling, to know that it's you who work in us to even will these good things as well to do them. We pray that we have fruit in Jesus' name.